Well, good morning, everybody. Find your seats again, and, and let's get started. We are going through a Bible study in the book of Romans. You might want to start to get ready. We're in chapter number 11. And as you're opening to Romans chapter 11, uh, kind of set the context just a little bit. Um, you know, in the world today, if you watch the news, there's a lot of trouble. And uh, worldwide, there's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of wars. There's a lot of fighting. A lot of it uh, you would think is just politically based. I, I think, tend to think there's always a religious motive behind a lot of the political wars, but you can kind of consider that thought for yourself if you want to. But there's nations fighting against nations all over the globe. And when we think about the conflicts and the deep-rooted hatred that exists between certain ethnic groups, they will always be at war with their neighbor in certain cases. And uh, I know I've experienced that when I lived in Albania and the neighbors to our north, the neighbors to our south were not friendly to Albanians. But, but really there is no national conflict in the current world and, and arguably maybe ever than the conflict that is in the Middle East. And with all of the neighboring countries that just hate the nation of Israel. Uh, we always talk about the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but it's much greater than just those that are Palestinians. Uh, ever since Israel was made a nation again officially, politically, in 1948, they have been ridden with war after war after war as they are so massively um, outnumbered by their enemies, and yet still, somehow or another, they have been able to survive. The U.S. presidents uh, of late have all tried to negotiate some sort of a peace plan uh, the Israelis have been willing to give up land for peace and all of these sort of things, but peace has never come. To no avail, none of that has ever really happened. And, and why are we talking about that coming into Romans 11? Well, because in, as we've studied the book of Romans, and we've been doing it for a year now, we understand that the main theme is all about God's righteousness. It's all about God's plan of salvation. And in association with that, when we get to chapters 9, 10, and 11, we have seen that the actual context of chapters 9, 10, and 11 deals with the nation of Israel and how God views the nation of Israel in chapter 9 in time past, prior to the church age, in chapter 10 during the time of the church age, the time in which we live, and in chapter 11 looking forward to a time yet future. And really we're going to be talking about what is referred to frequently as the restoration of the nation of Israel. And so this week and next week as well, we're kind of going to get a, a feel for that. Now, if you're going to have an understanding of the Bible, if you want to be a Bible student and if you want to understand what God has to say, you have to understand how God deals with Israel. Because once you understand how God deals with Israel, then you will better understand how you can expect God to deal with you. And, and that's a really important thing. God himself doesn't change, um, and, and the, the manner in which he deals with the way Israel responds to him and his offers of grace uh, are very consistent throughout the Word of God. So Romans 11 is going to be all about the restoration of the nation of Israel, and it starts in verse number 1. It says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. And throughout the chapter, Paul sets the standard under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on why God has not done that. He has made it very clear Israel still has a future. But yet there's a lot of misunderstanding. In the, in the real world in which we live, people don't seem to get it. So I, I made a title for today's message. I'm calling it The Proper Gentile Understanding of Israel. If you're new to church and, and you've heard the word Gentile and you're not exactly sure what that means, that just means anybody who's not Israeli. So they're the Jews and the Gentiles. If you're not a Jew, then you're a Gentile. Most all of us, probably all of us, are of a Gentile background. Okay, so if you want to get all of that right, you absolutely have to understand Romans chapter 11. So we came through the first 11 verses last week, and we're going to jump in at verse number 12. So if you'll just follow along, I'm going to read from verse 12 down through verse 24. In fact, I'll start in verse number 11, just to get a run and start. I think 12 will pop up on the screen, but I'll start in verse number 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. 
For if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall be the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. If the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity. But toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So we got a little horticulture going on today, and we're going to figure it out, okay? It's not that hard. It's a simple um, understanding of how God is dealing with his people and what our understanding of them should be. Let's just ask the Lord to teach us today. Heavenly Father, before your word again, as always, we stand amazed. You are perfect and holy and just and right, and you have given us this revelation for a reason. There is something you want us Gentiles in the church age to understand. There is a way that you want us to be able to respond and behave that would be pleasing to you. And it concerns the people that you chose and elected to be your people throughout the bulk of the Old Testament from the time of Abraham, the nation of Israel. And sometimes it's hard for us to figure it all out. Sometimes when we watch the news and we see a lot of the crazy stuff that's going around, it's hard for us to really get our bearings. But Lord, we can't possibly understand it if all we do is watch the news. We can't possibly understand it if all we do is talk among ourselves. We need to hear from you. And so, Lord, that's why we're here today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take your holy word and just impart it into our hearts and give us understanding so that we could please you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, the first thing I want you to see is the foolishness of anti-Semitism. The foolishness of anti-Semitism. Uh, anti-Semitism, you've heard the term, and, and maybe some of you are not yet aware of what exactly that means. Okay, a Semite. Anti is obviously against whoever these Semites are. And the Semite word comes from the fact that the Jewish people descend from Noah's three sons. There's Ham, Japheth, and Shem, and Shem is the one who ultimately leads to Abram, who ultimately becomes Abraham, and then Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes and Moses and everything, etc., etc. So the Jews then are the Shemites or the Semites, if you want to say it that way. And so anti-Semitism is just this idea that there is a hatred against the Jews. And politically, secularly speaking, anti-Semitism is rampant. I mean, everybody knows the story of Nazi Germany. That maybe is the pinnacle in our modern history of thinking about that, but this is not a new idea. People have hated the Jews for centuries and millennium. I mean, it's more and more common these days that everybody in all of these conflicts in the Middle East and worldwide, everybody, politically speaking, uh, in the media frequently, if not always, are trying to blame the Jews. And, and again, it's a greater than just Palestine. You've got Iran and Iraq and Egypt and Syria and ISIS and, and all of these things that are going on, and they, are, they all have one thing in common, and that's eradicate Israel. That's what they have in common. Uh, this is not just an Arab and a Muslim problem, by the way. Uh, I'm not trying to be specifically targeting anyone. That's the one that's most prevalent in the news. Do you remember back in a time, those of you who studied history and remember it, the Crusades? I mean, the whole idea of the Crusades back in the Dark Ages was when the Roman Catholic Church wanted to go and take over Jerusalem. Now, Israel wasn't a nation back then. But the idea is, is that we need to conquer that land of Israel. There's something special about it. And there is a satanic influence behind anything that tries to conquer and destroy what God set up to bless. That's what you need to understand. That's what God wants to communicate to us. And by the way, the story's not done. Now, we happen to be privileged enough to be living and studying this post-1948. But we could have been in church 100 years ago. 
And we could have been studying the same thing and had the same confidence because God's word says what it says, that he's not done with them yet. But what I want you to see about this is this. Why is it that anti-Semitism is foolish? I mean, why is it that it's just a foolish conclusion to say, I hate the Jews. I wish it's their fault. I think if we just got rid of them, we'd all be okay. Why is that a foolish conclusion? Well, there's several reasons, and I have them for you in your notes. The first one is because of the warning of judgment. Because of the warning of judgment. Before we get right into Romans 11, I just want to remind you of Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. And this is a promise that God gave to Abram right at the very beginning. And he starts off by saying, The Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country. Okay? And so he's speaking to him, and he's going to give him a prophecy of what's going to be coming down. He goes down a little further, and he says, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And the great nation that came out of Abram's loins is the nation of Israel. And he said, if you will bless them, that you will be blessed. And if you will curse them, you will be cursed. And never in Scripture ever has that unconditional promise that God made to Abram ever been rescinded, ever been changed, ever been updated, or ever been modified. I mean, God said it, and it is still in effect today. It is foolish to be an anti-Semite for the simple reason that now you're kind of anti-God. You go against his people in any way, and you just better know they got a big brother over their shoulder, and you don't want to mess with him. Well, there's another reason, and that's because of the physical benefits that they provide. The physical benefits. Yes, that's what I said that they provide. It says in verse number 12, Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world. It was, by the way. Listen, you may never have thought about it this way, but ever since 70 A.D., when Israel was destroyed officially as a nation and the Jews were scattered throughout primarily Europe at that time and eventually into North America and all over the world, when those Jews went all over the world, they had a unique ability to still survive. What they did was they got involved in business and commerce and trade and God supernaturally gifted and blessed that Jew to be able to make money. And the commerce and the trade and the business growth of the entire westernized world is directly and greatly affected because of what God did through the Jews, again, scattered throughout all the nations. The fall of them scattered them all over the world. And the fall of them, the Bible says, become, what is it? The riches of the world. That's exactly what happened. God gave them that ability, a supernatural, there's jokes, people make jokes about Jewish people and being able to make money. The truth of the matter is God gave them that ability, and you see that in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse number 18. This is Moses reminding who? The children of Israel of how they're to behave when they're about to enter into the promised land. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee the power to get wealth. Why? That he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. It was written to the Jews. It has been applied throughout all of history. The fact that they are scattered throughout the world, scattered the riches throughout the world as well, and we all benefit because of that fall. It's kind of a crazy way to think about it, but that is exactly what it says. Therefore, anti-Semitism, if you sit here enjoying the comfort that you enjoy in your rich Western world in a, in a degree is because of the fall of the Jews. Why would you hate them for that? The third point, C, because of the spiritual benefits they provide. The verse goes on and it says, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles. Well, that's what we saw when we look back at verse number 11. When we look back at verse number 11, before we, that's why I wanted to read it at the beginning, it says, but rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. Listen, the gospel we saw last week came directly to us because Israel refused to take it out around the world like they intended. They rejected their Messiah and they didn't carry the gospel to the world. And God said, okay, we're gonna just put that on pause for a while. We've got a plan B. I'll just send the gospel directly to the Gentiles then because my plan is for them to get it anyway. And he did that. And so the body of Christ directly is benefited and we'll see more about that a little bit later in this message. But not only that, 
Because of that, the body of Christ is directly benefited and we get the gospel and we get saved, but how many Christian people and Christian organizations have then in turn, turn gone and blessed the whole world in missionary work, in education, in aid, in humanitarian help, in relief, in development, in all of the things that help bolster society, Christian people historically have been behind it. And the reason that we Gentile Christians can be behind it and bless the entire world of the Gentiles that way is because the gospel came directly to us and the gospel came directly to us because they rejected and they were diminished. Why would you be mad at them about that? I just don't understand. It's foolish to be anti-Semitic. D, because of the future of prosperity. Because of the future prosperity that is coming in this thing. Listen, it says in verse number 12, how much more than their fullness? If, if their fall brought all these good things, how much better can it possibly be, can you imagine, when they are restored? They fell and we got all kind of good stuff. They are going to be raised up again. Can you imagine how awesome that's going to be? Why would you not be pulling for that? Why would you not be rooting for that? Why would you not want to get on their side and be a part of that? Listen, since 1948, we are in the very last of the last days. I mean, working our way into the millennial reign. Do we know when that is? Of course, we don't know exactly when that is. But you can know this. Israel's making a comeback. They're making a comeback. They sure are, and they're standing strong. I mean, you better get ready for that. You look down in verses 13 and 14. At the end of verse 13, Paul says, I magnify mine office. Paul, who is a Jew, he's of the tribe of Benjamin, right? He says, he boasted, he bragged that he was a minister to the Gentiles. Don't you know that that made the Jews mad? Don't you know that it made him mad that Paul the Pharisee ultimately gave in and follows this uh, Jewish carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth, and, and he goes and he then becomes the spark plug for spiritual revival all over the Middle Eastern known world at that time, and primarily targeting those who would have been the enemies of the Jews. Listen, that had to have ticked him off, but he did that on purpose. Why? And it says right in the verse, to provoke them to emulation. Emulation is literally the same thing as it was back in verse number 11, to jealousy. It was to provoke the Jews to consider, why is this ex-Pharisee, why is Paul of Tarsus, Saul at that time, why is he out preaching Jesus Christ to all of these Gentiles and they are getting on fire spiritually? What is that all about? Why are they doing that? And it provoked them to want to figure it out. It provoked them to look into it a little more. This provoking to emulation literally was, like it says, that he might save some of them, the end of verse 14. I want to provoke them to emulation, those which are of my flesh, the Jews, by the way, so that some of them will get saved. If they just get mad, enough, has anybody ever done that to you? Has anybody ever done anything to you that just made you mad? You were arguing about something and they said something and you didn't agree and they were sure and they were kind of arrogant about it and you just said, I'll show you, man. I'll show you. And you start looking into it. And then you look into it and you're like, Oh, man, I think he's right. <laughs> that's provoking you to go look into it, right? I mean, that's a good thing. I mean, the word provoke is used negatively at times, but in this case, it's, it's in a good context. That's what Paul had in mind. It's, it reminds me of a situation Paul wrote about in Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. He had some opposition. Paul's in jail, people making fun of him. But he, he, notice this. It says in Philippians 1, 15, Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife. And some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I'm set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Listen, as long as the word gets out, as long as the, the, the word of God can get to people and they can change, that, who cares? Who cares why they do it? Should they have a better attitude? Yeah, they should have a better attitude. So what? The word's still getting out. And Paul says, I'm going to rejoice in that. Yet most of the world, 
Listen, if you're sitting here and you agree with what we're talking about, if you're sitting here nodding your head and thinking, yeah, of course, obviously, for sure, I'm pro-Israel, absolutely, you're in the minority. Most of the world doesn't agree with you today, okay? I mean, we're in a Baptist church in America. Look, we're, we're among the few of the few who are going to still stand on this point. Our country is the only country that stands behind them politically. Listen, we're very in, in a very small minority. Most of the world is still anti-Semitic, which means... That looking forward into the future, this world scenario is going to get worse for the Gentiles before it gets better. Just know that. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And, you know, if you want to look at it from a secular mindset, a lot of it seems to be playing out as it's associated with Arab oil resources and how that leverages the economy and therefore the politics and then all of those sort of things. But at the end of the day, people are just making bad choices. They're all eventually, everybody, the Bible says, even the United States, everybody eventually, it's, prophet, it's prophesied, will turn against Israel. And then what's left is Revelation 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 through 19, which is hell on earth. It's called the Great Tribulation. And uh, a couple of big world wars still yet on our horizon, folks. Uh, they're prophesied. Just read Revelation. It's going to get worse before it gets better. So what's the proper attitude for us today as Christians? What, how should we think about this thing? Back in verse number 12, notice. Paul says this, For I speak to you Gentiles. There's a message for us. There's a message for us to learn in the midst of what Paul said he's doing and why he's doing it. And basically the idea is this, that we all need to have a heart to help Anybody who's blinded to spiritual truth, right? We saw last week how Israel is blinded. If you meet somebody who's blinded to spiritual truth, doesn't your heart of compassion go out to them? Don't you desire to help them know the truth? Sure. Well, why would you exclude the Jews out of that category? I mean, we should have a heart to help anybody, certainly including the Jews. And especially because we can understand, as the Scripture goes on to say, like in verse 15, their promised future is miraculous. Right Through the tribulation and into the millennium, their promised future is literally a miracle. It says in verse 15, And what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? I want to direct your attention to Ezekiel chapter 37. And Ezekiel chapter 37 is a story that you might be familiar with. It's a story of a valley, and it's full of bones, and the bones are dry, and there's no life in them. It's just... I mean, it's like if you've ever thought of, remember Cambodia and the killing fields and the horrific visions and pictures that were available back then and a lot of war-torn places, and it's just awful. That, this is the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel chapter 37, and it's a prophecy about Israel. In verse number 11, it says this. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried, our hope is lost, we are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves and shall put my spirit in you and you shall live and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall you know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. That's a resurrection from the dead. These are dry, dead, lifeless bones that come together and eventually God will blow into them the breath of life like he did Adam in the Garden of Eden and they will come together and they will have life again. Who are these bones? It gives you the context. These bones are the whole house of Israel. That's prophetic. That's still yet future. It's referred to back the chapter before in Ezekiel chapter 36. I want you to look with me verses 24 to 28. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. That all began in 1948. It's still going on. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. They haven't fully got that taken care of yet. It's still a process going forward. We are in a time of transition historically right now. A new heart also will I give you. That's not going to happen until a little bit future. And a new spirit will I put within you. 
And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God, not to be completely fulfilled until the millennium. And Peter knew that. And so Acts chapter 3 and verses 19 to 21, we see that exact message being repeated. Now I want you to get this because in Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter, I'm going to ask you guys right here, because this is a tough question. I know that you guys are going to get this. Acts chapter 3 in the Bible comes right after what? Acts chapter 2. Awesome. Way to go. It's perfect. And Acts chapter 2 is the story of Pentecost, and that is the giving of the Holy Spirit. For the first time, the church becomes a living organism. Way to go. And so what happens is the Holy Spirit comes in, and he gives life, just like is prophesied for the nation of Israel, to all who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we are cleanly into the New Testament era. We are for sure past the resurrection of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is being given. The church is birthed, and we are a new creation in Christ. It's an amazing thing. Acts chapter 3, though, Peter is still preaching a, a, a message that can have somewhat of a dual application because we can make application to the church, but really, literally, word for word is fulfilling what we just saw in Ezekiel 36 and 37. In Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, notice what it says, Repent ye therefore, his audience, by the way, are Jewish people, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. When? When the times of refreshing shall come, from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ. That's the second advent. Which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. That's the millennium. Which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. He can't possibly be talking about the church age. The Bible makes it very clear in other places that the church age, the entire body of Gentile believers together as one is a body, is a mystery. It was a mystery in the Old Testament. All the Old Testament prophets did not speak about the church. They spoke about the fulfillment of the promises to Israel that would ultimately take the gospel to the world. But they blew it. So God sent the gospel directly to us. And then he pulled the curtain back on what we understand now is the church age. And it's only been going on for a couple of days, a couple thousand years. The day with the Lord is a thousand years. And it's going to come to an end and God's going to shift back to the nation of Israel. This is the restoration of the nation of Israel. It is their resurrection from the dead as a nation. It's an ongoing process. In 1948, the bones came together. They're starting to return to their homeland. They're starting to have a form, a skeletal form of who they used to be. But spiritually, they haven't turned to their Messiah. The wind of God's Spirit has not blown in and through them to put a new heart in them and a new spirit in them. They are not yet fulfilling the status of the people of God again until they go through the tribulation that is still yet future. But understand this. This resurrection of the nation of Israel is life from the dead, verse 15. It is just as much a miracle as the raising of Jesus Christ or the raising of Lazarus. Just as much a miracle of anybody who's ever died and was risen from the dead is the same for the nation of Israel. Secular historians are amazed that after 1,900 years, a nation of people are able to keep their identity and once again reappear as a nation. Unbelievable. It is a bona fide miracle. And anti-Semitism is foolish. It's not just foolish. It's bad planning. I mean, it's just bad planning. Because if you're smart, you're going to go with the plan God gave you. It's just for your benefit. Okay, so the foolishness of anti-Semitism is one of the understandings we must have as Gentiles, especially Christians, concerning the nation of Israel. The second thing, and the last thing I want you to see, and it's going to be the, the bulk of the verses, what else is it that, that Gentiles, especially Christians, need to understand about Israel? Well, it's that you are grafted into the olive tree. So we're going to talk a little bit about this. Grafted into the olive tree. Before we get started, let me just take a little time and define for you what this olive tree really is. Okay, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you some references, and it's going to take, it's, we're going to go fairly quickly, because this is not the main thrust of the, of the message, but I want you to get this, and you can go home, and you can look it up, and you can pray about it, and you can think about it, but listen, let's go back to the beginning. When God started the whole thing, everything was in a garden, 
And it makes sense that God would start everything in a garden, right? I mean, where else would he start it? He put man in a place where there's food growing. I mean, that made sense. And he put him in a garden. And in Genesis chapter 2 and in Genesis chapter 3, if you read carefully, you will find that there are only four trees that are mentioned specifically in the garden. Okay? There are four trees mentioned specifically in Genesis chapter 2, and I didn't give you all these references. You just can go find them. In Genesis chapter 2, it talks about the tree of life. In Genesis chapter 3, it talks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one that they should not have eaten from. Okay? Once they did eat from it, and then they were going to be judged for their sin, it says that they covered themselves with fig leaves, so there had to have been a fig tree, and that ultimately Adam was going to work the ground, but as he worked the ground, what was going to grow up instead of the plants? Thorns and thistles were going to grow up. And so you have a thorn bush or tree, as it's referred to in other places in the Bible. So you have the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you have a fig tree, and you have a thorn tree. Those are the only trees that you hear specifically referenced in Genesis 2 and 3 from the very beginning. What I want you to do is keep that in your mind, and I want you to look with me in Judges chapter 9, because there's only one other place in all the Bible where four trees specifically are mentioned by name together in one context. Now, we don't have time to get into all the book of Judges and what's going on, and this is a prophecy concerning Israel and their kings, and it is given in this form of an illustration of the trees. Okay, and so as we go through this, just hear what God says. We're going to make the comparisons. It really starts in verse number 7, but we'll jump in in verse number 8 of Judges chapter 9. It says, The trees went forth on a time to anoint a king over them, and they said unto the olive tree, Reign thou over us. But the olive tree said unto them, Should I leave my fatness wherewith by me they honor God and man and go and be promoted over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, Come thou and reign over us. But the fig tree said unto them, Should I forsake my sweetness and my good fruit and go be promoted over the trees? Then said the trees unto the vine, Come thou and reign over us. And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine, which cheereth God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? Then said all the trees unto the bramble, or to the thorn, Come thou and reign over us. And the bramble said unto the trees, If in truth ye anoint me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow, and if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. And it ultimately turns into a very wicked uh, result for Israel who made bad choices concerning who they wanted to rule over them. Okay, that's the context of what's going on. But in this passage of Scripture, what you have is the only other place where four trees are mentioned. Two of them clearly line up with two that are back in Genesis, and the other two are going to line up with the two that we didn't know what they were back in Genesis. And so in this passage in Judges 9, you have the olive tree, you have the vine, which in many places in the Bible is referred to as a tree. You say, well, a vine's just a vine. A vine's not a tree. Um, I can take you to a place where I used to live in Tirana, Albania, where the vine had been growing for hundreds and hundreds of years, and the trunk of it is so big that it would take two of us maybe to put our arms around together to get all the way around the trunk of this vine tree, and the Bible calls it a vine tree. So there's the olive tree, there's the vine tree, there's the fig tree, and there's the bramble. And if you line them up, what you will find is, is that the olive tree, I'm going to give you a couple more references. The olive tree is the tree of life. That's what it was in the garden, and that's what it represents, and that's what it is, and that's an important thing. What you then find out is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit that was forbidden from you to be eaten, is not an apple. Sorry, I know the kiddies like the apple story. It's a grape, it's a vine. And, and that's not the study today, so we're not doing that. But in Numbers chapter 6, for those of you that are interested, you can go into Numbers chapter 6, and that grape is the only fruit in all the Bible that is forbidden at any place. It is forbidden, okay? And so that's an interesting thing. So the vine is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the grape, okay? And the olive is then the tree of life. And that's what we're going to see. Now, that is not a crazy thought. Literally, there was the tree of life in Genesis chapter 3. Then the cherub blocked the way after sin so that man could not eat of it and live forever. It's certainly if you go eat olives, it doesn't mean you're going to live forever. It just means that that's what God used and that's what the tree was and that's what it represents because it's going to represent for us. By the way, it appears again in Revelation chapter 22 at the restoration of all things, God brings it full circle back to where he started and the tree of life literally shows up again in Revelation chapter 22. What does it represent? It represents the spiritual life of Israel. That's what it represents. Uh, the fig tree will always represent Israel as a national political entity. 
But the olive tree, for those of you Bible students, you want to keep track of this, this will help you. The olive tree will always represent Israel in its spiritual relationship to God. It's the spiritual life of Israel. And so you study the olives throughout the Old Testament, and you find that the oil was olive oil that was given to light the lamps that were to burn continually in the tabernacle. I mean, it's a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. The anointing, the oil was always olive oil, or in your King James Bible, oil olive, okay? And that's what it was. It was oil that was pressed out of an olive. And that's what was given as a representation of the work of the Holy Spirit in them. That is spiritual life. Go to the New Testament and just notice a few things. Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gathers his disciples. It's just before he's about to be crucified and and then be um, resurrected, of course, and ascend to the Father. And he gives them this discourse on the things that are still yet future. He's giving them a discourse about spiritual things they need to know about. Where does he give them this discourse? It's on a mountain. What's the name of the mountain? It's the Mount of Olives. A couple chapters after that, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36, you find Jesus is praying in a garden, again a garden. It's called Gethsemane. Jesus is praying to his Father. This is spiritual communion between God the Father and God the Son. And he's praying in this garden called Gethsemane, which literally, if interpreted, means olive press. That's what Gethsemane means. It's an olive press. Zechariah chapter 4. And you go back in Zechariah chapter 4 and you'll read a story about two men and they are called the two olive trees. It's repeated and fulfilled in Revelation chapter number 11 and verse number 4 if you're interested. These turn out to be two men that stand and are a witness during the time of the tribulation. They are a witness unto spiritual life during a time when Israel needs to return to their God. These two men described in Revelation chapter 11 are clearly, by comparing Scripture with Scripture, another Bible study we don't have time for today, but just for your information, will be Moses and Elijah. And Moses and Elijah, these two witnesses, back in Zechariah 4, where they come from, in Zechariah 4, they are called the two olive trees. And so that's an important thing. Psalms 52 and verse number 8, it's a spiritual application of spiritual life, but I am like a green olive tree where in the house of God because that's what olive trees represent spiritual life and most specifically of Israel okay you need to understand that because now we as Gentile Christians are grafted into the olive tree listen God has a special place for Israel right it says in verse number 16 if the first fruit be holy the lump is also holy if the root be holy so also are the branches So we have a couple of illustrations, and the first illustration is that of bread. If the first fruit be holy, now the word first fruit in the Bible is used for anything that is given first to the Lord. A specific reference for you, if you're interested, would be in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse number four, where there is an offering of grain. It's corn that is brought into the priests, and from this grain, they would then make bread. That's the lump Okay, the lump literally is bread, right? It says in Galatians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough that becomes the bread. And so the lump is bread and the, and the offering of the first fruit is the grain. The whole idea is if the grain is holy, the bread is holy, right? If it got good grain, you're gonna have good bread. And he says, look, Israel started off right in their relationship with me. I'm not just kicking out the whole loaf of bread. We kind of might say today, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's going to be something good to come of this. You need to keep that in mind. It started out right, and they are still a special people for God and for his purpose. It is not done. They are set apart unto him. The other illustration is the bulk of of our text here, and that's the illustration of a tree. And it says that if the root be holy, so are the branches. So the root is the start of the growth, And as it continues to grow, it eventually grows out branches. That's easy. Okay, so in both cases, bread or a tree, they start out right. And so therefore, in God's mind anyway, the continuing of them has value. All right, but there are some, obviously, of the branches that just said, yeah, not so much. I'm not interested anymore. And so God whacked them off. Okay, said you're out. He cut the branches off. He cut some of the natural olive branches off the tree and grafted in 
a wild olive tree branch so that it can continue to grow. So in verse 17, and if some of the branches be broken off, why did that happen? Because they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them. How did that happen? Well, we accepted the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. That's simple. Okay, so exactly what does it mean to graft? Well, let me just give you a little definition. I mean, it's very simple. Okay, so here's four-point definition for grafting. To propagate by insertion or inoculation. So we're going to propagate more growth by inserting another branch into where, a space where one used to be. To insert in a body to which it did not originally belong. Well, that's who we are. We're the Gentiles, and we're going to partake of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, right? It did, we did not originally belong to it, but we are going to be joined, inserted into that body. Uh, to impregnate with a foreign branch. That's another definition. Or to join one thing to another so as to receive support from it. Okay, so you, Gentile church, you are the wild olive branch. And you're grafted into the original olive tree, the spiritual life of Israel, so as to propagate more spiritual life more readily than the original tree would have with the original branches. That's all he's trying to say. That's exactly what happens, and that's why God did what he did. And so it goes on and it says, And with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. You partake of the origins, the root, and the fatness, the blessings, of the spiritual life of Israel. Listen, you need to get this, and this is your next point in your notes. Christianity exists because of the Jews. Christianity exists because of the Jews. Don't you see how foolish it would be for a Christian to be anti-Semitic? First thing is that we have a Jewish Bible. The Bible you hold is Jewish. Both Testaments. Okay, in your notes, I think you have Romans 3, 4. That's a misprint. It should be Romans 3, 2. And Romans 3, 2 should say, unto them were committed the oracles of God. That means that the human authors chosen to write this book, they're all Jewish. Every one of them, 100%. I read a commentary that said somebody was a Gentile. Well, they're wrong. God said, unto them were committed the oracles of God. Jews gave you your Bible. You have a Jewish Bible. Uh, by the way, you have Jewish salvation. John chapter 4 and verse 22, Jesus said in himself, salvation is of the Jews, which shouldn't surprise you because you have a Jewish Savior. I mean, Jesus Christ was a Jew in the flesh, right? When he came to earth, he came to earth as a Jew, he came to fulfill the Jewish law given to Moses in the nation of Israel. I mean, that's what he came to do. Listen, you understand, don't you, that the theme of this book, the theme of the Bible, is not how to build a Baptist church. I mean, you know that, right? It's not even how to be good to your neighbor. I mean, you can learn those things from this. But the theme of this book is all about a king and a kingdom. It's about authority. And that kingdom has a physical aspect, and it has a spiritual aspect. But I don't care if it's the physical aspect or the spiritual aspect. The king and the kingdom that are the theme of this book is a Jewish kingdom. <laughs> it's a Jewish king and a Jewish kingdom. That's what it's all about. Your Christianity exists because of the Jews. It doesn't matter how you look at it. And right now is the only time in history since Genesis 12 that the Gentiles have equal access to God with the Jews. So what's the proper attitude? Well, he makes it very clear. Since that's the case, in verse 18, boast not against the branches. He must have said that because he knows that we have a tendency to boast ourselves against the branches. Don't be filled with pride. Don't think that you're something. I mean, it says in verse number 19, thou wilt say then, God's got our number, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in because I'm a really good branch. No, you weren't grafted in because you're awesome. You were just grafted in because circumstances led to you being presented with an option to make a decision. And the circumstances were that Israel rejected their Messiah. And when the circumstances opened the door of opportunity and the gospel came to you by grace, you were smart enough to say, yeah, I want that. 
and you humbled your heart and received Jesus as your Savior by faith. That's all. You're nothing. I'm nothing. We're all nothing. We have no room to boast. How in the world would we dare stand up and boast ourselves against the branches that were cut off? That's ridiculous. Verse 20, well, because of unbelief. Please understand, in the Old English, that word well does not mean, well then. It, it, it literally is just a, a way of saying yes. It's an affirmation. It's as though you could say yes, indeed they were. Why were they cut off? Well, they were cut off because of unbelief. Why were you grafted in? Because of belief. That's all. It's just that simple. And he goes on with a warning and he says, be not high-minded, but fear. Be not high-minded, that's pride, but rather fear. Why? Because if you don't, you too could be cut off. You too could be cut off. Now, when I say that, listen. Well, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, I have in your notes, right? Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. That's kind of the idea. But when he says you too could be cut off, please understand, the context of this dialogue is towards groups of people. You have the group of the Jews, the group of Israel, and then you have the group of the Gentiles. So as, as the nation as a group was cut off, individuals can respond to Jesus and get saved. As, as the nation or the, the nations that make up the Gentile nations, if we get haughty against Israel, we too can be cut off. This is not an individual application because if it were an individual application, then it would have to mean that somehow or another you could lose your salvation if you don't keep persevering or something like that. And that's ridiculous. The Bible clearly does not give room for that kind of interpretation. The context bears that out, that that's not what he's saying. The point is just simply this. God will keep dealing with the Gentiles as long as the Gentiles keep believing the Bible, reading the Bible, and listening to what it says. When the Gentiles quit listening to God, got no use for the Gentiles anymore. And that's just how it's going to work. Okay, so let's go on to the next thing because you need to understand that there are two sides to God. And that's verse number 22. It says, Behold the goodness and severity of God. Do you see that? God has goodness and severity. God is love, right? He loves us. But he's also jealous. It's kind of the other side of love, isn't it? God is light. He's also a consuming fire. He's heat. (laughs) There's a positive side of God to all that love him. And there's a negative side of God to all that hate him. Now the world doesn't like that. The the, The world of the unsaved people of this world, they only want a God who is nothing but loving and kind and compassionate and good, accepting and tolerant, That's the kind of God they want. They can't stand the idea of a God who is holy and brings judgment and wrath. But that just doesn't make any sense. Listen, every battery has to have two terminals, a positive and a negative. If you have two positive terminals or if you have two negative terminals, you know what you have? You have no power. And what this world wants is a two positive terminal God. He's just positive to everybody all the time, always kind and loving and accepting no matter how wicked and evil and, 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 and depraved we are. And no judgment whatsoever. And that God with a small g that they want has no power. It has no power. Behold the goodness and severity of God. That's an important thing to remember. Listen. The typical mindset these days among Gentile peoples of this world is contrary to the nation of Israel. It, without a doubt, it's a conclusion that just doesn't make any sense since we all gain so much benefit from their existence. I'm telling you, there has to be a satanic influence behind it. And for those of you that are interested, if you want to look up and study this thing called the mystery of iniquity, that's what that's all about. It's a spirit of Antichrist. It's a spirit of of Satan that is at work among the peoples of this world to turn against everything that is godly and holy and right and just and pure. 
So what does that mean to us? How should we act? What does God want from us today? Well, we kind of looked at already. Boast not against Israel. Be not high-minded. Don't be proud against the Jews. I don't care if they are not currently standing as born-again Christian people in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are still the apple of God's eye. They are making a comeback. They are special to him. Uh, Genesis 12 promise still exists. Bless those that bless thee. Curse those that curse thee. And you have to be very careful. You can not take a stand against that it is to your own detriment and also be ready to help them be ready to help them find the lord be ready to help them because in this day and age the church age they have the same hope that any of us have just you know whosoever call upon the name of the lord shall be saved and if they will they can be saved just like we are just like anybody else okay so more generally than that because you know tuscross county i mean you know how many jews you meet in any way really I mean, how's this really playing out in your life? Well, on a very personal level, how about you just learn from the example of Israel to stand strong? In other words, the nation of Israel were God's people, and they just decided to follow their idols in their heart rather than follow the Lord and his word, and God cut them off. And do you know that we live in the last days of the church age? We refer to a time of Laodicea, where it seems like more and more and more we keep seeing people who are born-again Christians who said they loved the Lord, who, who worshiped him and served him and prayed and witnessed and gave and sacrificed and served, little by little are falling away and becoming carnal and going back into sin and turning their back. So isn't our existence kind of like the nation of Israel? Can't we learn from their mistakes so as not to repeat the mistakes that they made? There's going to be a remnant of Israel that will stand, the believing crowd amidst the national crowd. We saw that in the last couple of weeks. Okay, so why don't we become the remnant of Bible-believing Christians in the last days when it seems like the tendency is for everybody else to fall away? I pulled out Luke chapter 12 to wrap this up for you today, and there's several verses I'm going to read to you. And I want you to keep this perspective because this is the perspective of somebody who's going to be alive at the very end as Jesus Christ comes back to judge this world. Luke 12, 34, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And ye yourselves, like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And know this, that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. But be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh in an hour when you think not. We don't know exactly when the Lord's coming. Second watch, third watch, fourth watch. Let me tell you, it's coming. It's coming. And if you knew it was coming tomorrow, you'd get your house right today. You know you would. Well, let me tell you, you don't know it's not tomorrow. So why don't you get it right today anyway? That's what, those are the blessed people. Those are the people he wants to find. The fact that God has a plan for Israel reminds us that he has a plan for us too. He hasn't forgotten them, and he hasn't forgotten you. They need to return to Jesus. Do you? Do you need to return to Jesus? That's what I want you to consider. Let's pray together.